I am Jason Aspiotis, founder and CEO of Finsafi. I'm Rick Ward, founder and CFO of Orbit's Edge. I'm Michael Maloney, founder of Satellite Design for Recovery. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. So almost all the missiles will have a frequency that they will go to when they launch the missile. And if it's a beam rider riding the uh, beam from the fighter, the fighter has to go to that frequency and stay on it. Now, if they can detect that frequency, they can either use sweep jamming or spot jamming, where they can jam that frequency so they can get in there. So this is a constant battle going back and forth. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm Jason Kanigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies, a data science process improvement firm. That means we help uh, make good companies better. And we work in the space industry, and I have been exploring the topic of electronic warfare because as you start learning about antenna and spectrum and all this stuff, uh, it becomes important. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a vital topic for uh, at least me to learn about. And since this is, uh, has become a space-centered show, I want to bring to you uh, topics that maybe you didn't study or didn't feel you needed to learn about, but they actually become important. And also, uh, if you wanna make money, <laughs> the venture capitalists that I talk to in the space sector want a terrestrial and a space use for anything that is uh, made. And so something that works in the electronic warfare uh, area will work terrestrially and obviously uh, up in the air and possibly in space and that is uh, where my brain is going that is where uh, I'm thinking hey maybe some products can be developed here so I'm excited to have Bruce Gordon on again he's a major in the United States Air Force and a uh, <laughs> combat veteran uh, 132 missions I think in Vietnam in various uh, fighters and also, electronics warfare instructor at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, remembered all that <laughs> from my last show. And we had a great discussion last week of, of uh, an introduction to this topic of electronic warfare, which I had run into because I had started studying the history of it. Where did it come from? How did it start? And uh, I found Bruce's channel was astonished to learn that he had actually met Reginald Jones, the British scientist who had uh, come up with the whole idea in the first place that maybe the Germans are doing this, <laughs> riding, riding a, a radio beam uh, to bomb targets uh, at night in, in Britain uh, so that they could uh, navigate without having to visually see the target. And then uh, all the countermeasures to that. So what we're doing here today is uh, Bruce is gonna take us through a little bit more of the guts now that we've got the history and if you missed that episode i'll link to it below in the description go back and watch that but uh, today we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how this electronic warfare countermeasures and counter countermeasures starts to work um, so i'm excited to have you here bruce i will let you take over thank you very much jason i will start with a little bit about my background and then i'll go into some very deep theory, and then I'll go into the application of those theories. So let me share my screen here. ECM in the Cold War. I'm Bruce Gordon. I was 15 years as a fighter pilot, and I used both radar and infrared myself. So I have personal experience 
with electronic countermeasures and electronic counter countermeasures. I did fly 132 missions in Vietnam in the F-100, although the F-100 had no ECM or ECCM. That was going back to me to the old days where I had a fixed gun sight and you saw the guys and you shot at them and that was the way you did it. But after leaving the F-100, I went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and my experience with electronic warfare made them make me a teacher for ECM and ECCM because Wright-Patterson, they have these many people coming into the organization. Some have a lot of experience, some have none, and you have to give them a background of what they're trying to do. I did write a book, The Spirit of Attack, but it's fighter pilot stories, and you can get it on Amazon.com if you want to pay more money. They sell it for about $31. But if you send $20 to Bruce Gordon, 105 Broadville Court, Georgetown, Kentucky, 40324, I'll send it promptly back to you and I'll endorse it and all that. So let me get on with the show. The first thing I want to do is give you an overview of a rather complex concept. Let's take a look at the electromagnetic spectrum. And in this one, which shows the visible light that so many of us work on, for some reason, they put the low frequencies to the right and the high frequencies to the left. So that is actually very important to us. And we'll shift here. You have your, of course, your, your ultraviolets and you come down here uh, to your deep red and there is actually, what I'm trying to get here is the difference in the size of the antenna that's needed to get a good resolution. The human eyeball is effectively a receiving antenna for visible light. And you might have noticed it, but your, your visible light your antenna, your eyeball is well adapted to these middle frequencies. But if you get really low frequency, really poor lighting, you will find that your vision is decreasing and it's better in the higher frequencies. And if you could go up in the ultraviolet, you would find that it's even more uh, precise up there, but because your antenna, your eyeball, is focused in this range, your best vision is in these areas here. But we're not talking about the visible light here, we're talking about the invisible. You can go into the infrared, and if you've seen infrared photography, it's kind of grainy. It doesn't have the resolution because the wavelength is getting larger. Now you can improve that by making your antenna larger. So as you get larger, lower frequencies, 
longer wavelengths, your antenna has to get larger. Most of our radar is done here in this frequency here. Then you have FM radio, television, uh, short wave, and way up there. But in this one, they have low frequencies to the right and high frequencies to the left. We're going to go into the radar group. And radar thinks a little different. These people never did get together because you'll notice we shift the sizes. Let's, let's go to the radar frequencies. Now we shifted over here and the high frequencies are to the right and low to the left. That confused me for years. So I'm just telling you, they do it. You know, just because the radar people grew up separate from the visual light people. But this has a lot more data here. Now, as you can see, the X-band, uh, well, let's see, you're coming down here and mostly this is the, uh, what we call the centimeter wavelength area. These are centimeters. And here's your wavelength in centimeters as you go across here. And as you go in this lower level, you have longer wavelengths and less resolution. You go toward the higher wavelengths, and here X-band is where your fighter radars are normally located. And you can go into the very high frequencies, and those are the KU band and things like that. Now, those are useful where you want a very high resolution. And one of the best uses of that is, for instance, a helicopter. A helicopter doesn't need to see very far, but he needs to see high resolution. He needs to see telephone wires. If he, you know, he can't run into telephone wires. He can't run into little towers or, or some little antenna that somebody put up. No, he wants something really high resolution, but he doesn't want range. As a matter of fact, range works against him because if he's out there transmitting a radar beacon, the enemy can pick it up and know he's coming. So if he picks a frequency that has a high resolution, but is readily absorbed by the water in the atmosphere, it doesn't go very far. They can't pick him up from a long ways. So he wants something way out here in the very high frequencies. Now a radar wants something that you can tell within a matter of feet of where it is. And we don't care whether it's 10 feet off. We're looking at an airplane. We're gonna hit this darn thing. And if we're 10 feet off, it doesn't matter to us very much. Now, as you move down, you get into the longer wavelengths of radar where you do normal air traffic control, your weather radars and things like that are all located in this area here. But you'll notice they have bigger antennas. You can't put a large antenna 
on a fighter aircraft. So you're going to have to be somewhere in this area in the X-band frequency for radar antenna. And that's really where you want to be because now you want to see a target. Down here, you want to see airplanes far away. And you don't care if you're a thousand feet off as to where it is. But you do have to get range. So your frequency goes down and your pulse repetition rate, you send out a pulse. And you have to send out that pulse and wait for it to come back. You can't have two pulses in the air at the same time. So your length of your radar is determined by how your, your length of radar range is determined by how long that pulse goes out and you wait for it to come back. Now, so that when you pick up a, when you go on the electronic intelligence and now you pick up a radar signal, you can tell by its frequency and by its pulse repetition rate and the length of its pulse what it is looking for. And many aircraft, well, let me say even fighters, even fighters taking the X-band, we can be searching for you in the lower part of the X-band where it is, we're looking for distance. But then when we lock onto you, now we want a lot more precision about where you are. So if you're listening to it from an electronic intelligence standpoint, you'll hear the long pulses from the fighter when they're looking for you. But when they lock onto you and start tracking you, they will shift frequency and they will shift their pulses. So that tells you that they have found you and they are locking onto you which is terribly important to you. Now let's back off here to the longer frequencies. Now they point out that stealth aircraft can be detected in the lower frequency ranges. As you get into these meter wavelengths and, high, and even lower, they can pick up stealth aircraft. However, they cannot track at those frequencies. They don't know precisely where it is. They have to shift, have something else that's going to a higher frequency to attack. So for a long time in SAC, for instance, they would fly over toward Russia and Russia would be painting them with these lower frequencies. And the SAC didn't worry too much about that. In those days, we didn't have stealth. We didn't worry about that. They assumed they could track us. These, these frequencies can track you, but they can't kill you. So as long as they couldn't kill you, why worry about them? Worry about the things that can kill you. The things that can kill you are going to show up in these frequencies. So don't even worry about those guys. And now if they can pick up our stealth aircraft 
in the low frequencies, they might, they don't do a good job because stealth aircraft are hard to pick up in any frequency, but they can be picked up in the lower frequencies. But they can't kill you. So you go right ahead and, and fly your mission. You don't worry about it until somebody comes up in one of these frequencies. And in those frequencies, a stealth aircraft is, the stealthiness is quite effective. That's where it's aimed at. You can't be stealthy in all frequencies. For instance, as I said, your eyeball is recording any frequency and you can see the stealth aircraft perfectly well, which shows that in some frequencies it is visible. Okay, and the uh, UH, these very low frequencies will pick up stealth aircraft, but they don't know within a couple of thousand feet of where it is. And even more, they don't know, usually they don't know your altitude. To get your altitude, they usually use some sort of a height fighter, a nodder that goes up and down and tries to find your frequency. But now that one will use a higher frequency. And stealth aircraft are pretty good against higher frequencies. So they probably don't know your altitude. That means that you could be coming in at 1,000 feet, or you could be coming in at 40,000 feet. If you were trying to fire a missile, someone said on the internet to me asked, well, why don't you just send out an optical missile? Well, first of all, they don't even know what altitude you're at. It's not that they just don't know within a thousand feet or so where you are, but they don't know what altitude you're at. You could send missiles through there. And if you're at a thousand feet and you send your missiles up at 30, 40,000, you know, never see it. So that doesn't work. Now, I want to go on to the practical applications of this, starting with chaff and flares. Chaff and flares are similar. They're just for different wavelengths. I like this particular photograph of a B-52. It's dropping bombs with balloons. These are little parachutes that slow down the bomb. When you're flying at low altitudes, like we did in Vietnam, and I'm dropping bombs, I'm going horizontally low over some uh, troops. I want to be quite low because I want to be very accurate. And by golly, we didn't have any laser guided anything. It was, there they are. I want to hit them. Okay. And we had a little gun sight that was, we dialed in the mills to put it down a little bit. And when it got over, we had to be at the right speed and all that. But it was all optical. But if you dropped the bomb, what we call a slick bomb, it would travel right underneath you. And it would hit the ground right underneath you. And if you're only 400, 500 feet above the ground, you can get killed by your own blast. So we used high drag bombs that had things that popped out behind them. Now they've gone a little bit better 
they're using these balloons, which are little parachutes that are slowing down the bombs. But what we're focusing on here is the flares. Now, these flares could be chaff. The same thing happens, but the chaff is for the radar spectrum, flares are for the infrared spectrum. Now, as an attacking fighter, like I was most of my life, I look at this and say, what is my counter countermeasure to it? They're, they're ECM are the flares or chat. Now, I look at that picture and I say, well, what's obvious about it? Well, first of all, my target is to the left. All the countermeasures are to the right. So I can tell my system to track on the left side of the signal. Now, if I'm my, my attack, instead of being directly broadside here, which is an unusual way to attack, more likely you're gonna be behind him. So you get behind him, and now the target is farther away than the chaff or flares. So, you set your system, or it can be set by automatically from the geometry that it senses, to say that, okay, track the far end of the uh, signal, not the near end. So we can uh, use signal edge tracking, and now in the newer ones, the Doppler radars, you can say that, okay, this, the moment this drops out, it slows down. Chaff stops almost instantaneously. So there is a tremendous Doppler shift between the target and the chaff. So a Doppler radar will therefore not accept a large Doppler shift. So that is how we will find the target. And among other things that we can do, by the way, as a fighter, I know the B-52 has almost all its antennas on the underside of the airplane and some up here in the tail. But if I come in up above the B-52, his structure, the structure of his airplane will blank out part of his radar, his jam. So I can move to a position where his own fuselage is blanking out his jamming signals. And so I can come in from there. So there are many things I can do. And that's one of the things I found out when I went to Wright-Patterson. I was teaching all the, the people there were all jammers. They knew how to turn on jamming and it did this. And my question was, is, okay, as a fighter pilot, what am I going to do when I see your jamming? And in, back in my day, I saw raw radar. Now it's a computer doing it, and they're just getting a sort of a computer game uh, blip on the screen that is put there. And the computer has to do this thinking. But what does that mean to me as a jammer 
is that if I can get into the, figure out the logic of their computer, if I can feel, fool the computer, the pilot hasn't got a chance because he doesn't see the target himself. At least when I went in there, I saw raw radar and I could see him doing these things. But if you're running one of the new systems, the computer does it all. But if I can screw up that computer, I've got it. What other things can you do? You can have spot jamming where you know his frequency. And in the old days, the fighter would come in on one frequency and you could just spot jam it. One thing, you've got a huge spectrum out there and you don't, if you put all your energy out to a wide spectrum, it loses power. You want to focus your frequency on his frequency. So you want to focus it. If you put a barrage jamming where you just try to cover his frequencies, you're not going to be powerful on any frequency. You're going to need to focus in on his frequency. Now, we can start moving our frequency and changing frequencies. And he says, well, I can do sweep jamming. I can sweep my frequencies, high and low frequencies within his X band, up and down. And if he's, jam he's trying to track me in there, I can possibly, when I come through, I can break his lock. And particularly true if he's launching a, a radar missile. Now, one of the problems with missiles is, first of all, you know they've got a very small antenna, so they have to be a high frequency. Well, they want a high frequency because they want to, to home in on them precisely. Now, now you want to know within a, you know, a couple of feet where you're hitting. So they'll be on a high frequency. But because they're a small system, they can't be changing frequencies. So almost all, all the missiles will have a frequency that they will go to when they launch the missile. And if it's a beam rider riding the uh, beam from the fighter, the fighter has to go to that frequency and stay on it. Now, if they can detect that frequency, they can either use sweep jamming or spot jamming, where they can jam that frequency so they can get in there. So this is a constant battle going back and forth. Now, in electronic countermeasures, I can change frequencies. Okay. Then we went to rapidly changing frequencies, where we were changing. At first, we changed frequencies we pushed a button on the uh, F-102, we would push a button and it would change the frequency. And the enemy was trying to keep up with it. They had manual things to try to keep up with it. And then they finally got automatic tracking so they could track our frequencies as we went up or down pushing our button. But then we got 
into agile frequencies. Now we got good. Now we're getting the F-106 department. We transmitted a frequency and we had to wait for the pulse to come back. But during the time that we're wait, our receiver is waiting for the pulse to come back, our transmitter is moving to another frequency. And it can go either up or down. Anywhere in the spectrum, in the X-band spectrum. So the next pulse will not be on the same frequency. So if they picked up this frequency coming in, the next pulse is going to be at an entirely different frequency and they can't track it. Now, some planes like the B-52, that guy with eight engines and lots of generators running, I mean, he had jammers on that thing that would water your eyes. But they couldn't really get through the 106, but supposing they could, like they could in the 102, they couldn't cover us. Then we would go to home on jam. I just reached over and pushed the switch, and it would, this guy's putting out all this power. I said, okay home in on it guy so it turns in and homes in on it now it's going to give you a curve of pursuit sort of like an infrared attack because it doesn't know it'll just keep you pointed at him but you go fast and keep pointed at him and hey if you don't take action you're going to run into it let's face it and you're going to see him before you get there and you might be able to shoot him down with something else so that's home on Let's take a look at range deception jamming. A radar pulse goes out and it bounces off the airplane. You have to wait for it to come back. Now, as a uh, false echo comes back, here you are and you've got a, angle de uh, a range deception jammer. Uh, you send out a false echo, uh, you know, if he's got a constant pulse repetition frequency, you know when the next pulse is coming. And you can actually send a false echo before the pulse gets to you. And that will make him think that the target is closer. And the false target will appear bigger than the real target. And his IF gain control, which tries to turn down his, his radar to get the best resolution, will turn down his gain control as this gets bigger and his real target will actually disappear from his scope entirely. So the way to do that, get against that, is to do a random pulse repetition frequency so that you, he doesn't know when your next pulse is coming from, from the radar down here. He doesn't know, the, this guy doesn't know when the next radar pulse is coming, so he can't make it appear in front. By the way, if it appears in front, he can actually fire his guns or his missiles at a false target that really isn't there. But now, if you use a random PRF, uh, this guy can only make targets that are farther out in range. 
you can't make them closer. So they, it's, but so random PRF, but everybody is using random PRFs now. Angle deception. Angle tracking is usually done, particularly in missiles, with a nutating beam around. See, these are offset around a, a call this a post here, just sort of a hula hoop, I call it. Uh, you do the hula hoop, and they all come around this point. And as the antenna goes around in this way, is nutating in this direction, it picks up the target here. Well, the picked up target then sends a signal to the tracker that then moves this point, the tracking point, toward the target. And as this moves toward the target, the missile flippers turn toward the target. So that's how it tracks. So how do you jam that? Well, if I know his mutation frequency and I can start sending out a pulse, I'll send out a pulse on his frequency, say when it's up here above. And the missile, it'll be stronger than this one. So the missile will probably take it somewhere between it and end up going up here. It'll miss me. That's what I want it to do. Okay. If I don't know his mutation frequency, I can do it kind of randomly. And that might, while it won't be perfect, it might make his missile go into a big spin, trying to track it. So knowing his mutation frequency is very important. And we get that through various electronic intelligence methods, or possibly spies are always good. Uh, B-52s have lots of barrage jamming. Fighters in Vietnam, uh, we had boxes of F-4s so that they would be in a, in a box stacked. And if they were all jamming, the missiles would go, tend to go between them. Now the, the missile, the SA-2 is very difficult. They put their, they got their guidance from the ground. They didn't get it from us. They got it from the ground radar, but and their missile antennas were facing toward the rear. So it was hard to get jamming in from the side. You also, these things were going very fast. And because your turning radius goes up by the square of your speed, and we were going slower than the missiles, we could see the missiles coming. And what we would do, for instance, and the, the missile was being guided from the ground. So as we looked out, we saw the missile coming, we would turn so that it's say at our 10 o'clock position so we can see it well. And then we would start a rapid descent. And uh, the radar would pick up the fact that we're coming down and the radar assumes that half of the movement of the radar is just system error, but the other half is real. So as we start going down, it picks it up that we've been going down and it will guide the missile now, instead of ahead of us up here, it will aim down below us. 
so that we're coming down, it'll hit this point. And as it's coming in now, as we see it's committed down, suddenly we pull up and toward it. And it will be the computer, their computer is still thinking we're going down and only half of this change is what they're computing. So if you keep your timing right, you can outmaneuver the thing. But what did they do? They'd fire five or six of them at the same time, bless them, so that you could outmaneuver one or two, but you might run into the others. So with lots of missiles coming at you, you had a problem. We had wild weasels that went out there and would pick up their radar admissions and would fire missiles, but I'm running out of time here. So I'm gonna go on um, to the next. Yom Kippur War in Israel versus Egypt in 73. The Russians had a new missile and they shot down dozens of Israeli aircraft in three days. The um, Israelis attack with gay abandon. You know, they don't care about losses. Well, by golly, the Sams took them down. They lost almost 100 fighter planes in the first three days. Almost their entire fighter force was wiped out. They called for US help, and we were flying fighters from our own planes in Europe to Israel, loaded with bombs. We landed them in Israel. Our guys got out. They painted out the US star and put on the Star of David, put on fuel, and put in an Israeli pilot, and off they'd go. Also, we detected with our ELINT a new frequency that we didn't know on this SA-6. And we sent that missile, that frequency data, back to our people at England Air Force Base, Florida. And when they looked at it, they said, oh, that's a simple one. It happened to be a uh, simple, constant frequency and easy to jam. Well, we had jammers on the plane. We just needed to change the uh, computer algorithm in our jammer. We changed, now the, the planes are now all ours because the Israelis lost all theirs. So we just sent over the, um, the data and changed the algorithm in our jammers and it was 100% effective against the SA-6. We never lost another plane to the SA-6. That's how electronic intelligence and ECCM work. So every countermeasure, every countermeasure has another countermeasure, but it's so expensive that the Army doesn't use it very much because ECM costs as much as the helicopter. Chaff and flares still work. They're kind of like the bayonet, I call it. Damn it, it's old, but damn it, the bayonet works. So chaff is like that. I have been fooled by chaff myself, and it's embarrassing that I got fooled by chaff, but it does happen. Drones, they can't carry the ECM. It's expensive. You want these drones to be cheap. They also weigh more. So you can't, if you want a high altitude drone, you can't set it up so high. So they're not, they don't have it. 
And ECM, when you transmit it, uh, is not stealthy. Also, the antennas that you need for the ECM, every antenna uh, receiver is also a good reflector. So they're not stealthy. Remember, Iran captured a US drone by jamming its GPS and convincing it that its home plate was an Iranian Air Force base. So when it tried to go home, it went and tried to land at the Iranian Air Force Base. It turned out they didn't have the coordinates for it, right? But anyway, it landed just a little bit away from the air base, but it tried to land and they got our drone. So you can steal, they can steal our drones. And stealth is really the perfect uh, electronic countermeasure because except in the low frequencies, I don't know a way to get it. Do you have any questions? Well, that was great, Bruce. Um, I, I appreciate that. I, I wrote down a few things while, while you were going through the presentation. Um, thank you for pointing out the flip with the, the frequency diagrams with the radar versus spectrum in general. Uh, I think I've been confused about that myself. Uh, I go around and I find books and watch videos and things like that. And uh, so I'm gonna watch for that <laughs> from now on. And go, yeah, cause that, that to a novice might um, cross your eyes and make you go, wait, I don't, I don't understand why this changed, but um, that's key. Um, pointing out the, the, the visible spectrum, um, I find, your regular everyday human thinks of visible spectrum as real uh, and yet it's just a tiny slice of the available um, everything that is out there light and and what can be seen um, and it's a good reminder uh, the idea of a, of a stealth bomber or something flying through the visible spectrum and being invisible to our eyes was a, an idea that popped into my head right uh, while we were doing this and that is fascinating um, and yet why would we treat that uh, as any different as it being invisible on a scope right it's it's really not that much different it's just what we're used to right what we what we experience and, and then this idea that oh what i see seeing is believing that's real right uh, it's just more input. Um, and for folks who want to see what, uh, what a, an old radar scope looked like, where you could get that raw radar that uh, Bruce was talking about, you can go to Bruce Gordon's channel on YouTube. It's just called that. Uh, and, and he's got a video on that. Also on the Spirit of Attack Facebook page. I think that's where I actually saw that. Mm -hmm. uh, I recommend folks go and, and look at that. Um, Okay, so here's an actual radar question. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Radar, radar scopes is what it's called. Mm -hmm. Radar scopes. Okay. And I have one more thing for you, by yeah. the way, because you're so interested in mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. Some of these limitations that I was talking about, the high frequencies, mm -hmm. uh, apply to Earth with our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But let's take these very high frequencies that get absorbed and don't go very far mm -hmm. on Earth. As you go to space, now you don't have that absorption. Mm. So as a result, you can get, use much higher frequencies and get your photographic quality radar pictures, mm. which you couldn't mm -hmm. do so well on Earth. Okay, now does that photographic picture have to be in space still? 
uh, and not down into the atmosphere. Uh, yeah, well, the more It'll atmosphere blocked, goes right? through, the, the more it loses. Right, right. Okay. Now, I could go into, into uh, um, the uh, using a, what, I can't think of the term right now, the uh, artificial uh, length, wavelength. If you're flying along mm -hmm. in a airplane, and transmit a frequency out, you can fool the uh, radar into believing that it comes up that as your airplane moves along, this is all one big antenna. Mm. And you can send a lower frequency using the uh, movement of your aircraft mm. to get higher resolution. Mm. We were doing that in Vietnam. Well, we're we didn't do it in Vietnam, it was after Vietnam. Mm. I was working on it to get through the jungle canopy because mm. a low frequency would go through the jungle canopy, but you wanted to see the trucks down there. And the trucks uh, needed a higher frequency to see them. But uh, the synthetic aperture radar is what mm. it's called. Okay. If you flew along and made a synthetic aperture radar picture, it would use the movement of your aircraft to make the computer think that this was all one big antenna. Now with a big antenna, that low frequency is still a small part of it. Mm. And you can get a high resolution with a synthetic aperture radar. That's one of the ways we're doing uh, better, much better uh, radar pictures than we're used to get in the future. But we didn't develop that until after Vietnam. It was Vietnam that told us we needed it. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back and watch the movie Flight of the Intruder and see how realistic or baloney it is. Uh, because I do remember that movie having the, the A6 flying in and uh, the radars turning on and tracking them and whatnot. And we'll mm -hmm. see. <laughs> Hollywood writers tend to be quite lazy and not knowledgeable about their topics. But uh, it was a fun movie, I remember. Um, okay, I, I, I had a question here. I've got, I wrote notes down in my book um, about the sweep jamming. Um, so you've got your, your target, uh, hopping up and down and, and that's, you're trying to jam that with your sweep jamming. What is, uh, obviously it's going to vary based on the power output you're able to uh, put out, but what is the general coverage of, uh, of the jammer on that in terms of Hertz and range? Is there a general rule of thumb on that? Well, it'll probably be throughout the, the X band range. Mm -hmm. One of the th things that actually even the Russians are following mm -hmm. is there are international rules set up uh, on frequencies. And they have uh, frequencies for radar. And you know the, where the X band is. Mm -hmm. And that's for radar. If you go outside that, it's used by other organizations. Mm -hmm and you're not allowed to use it under international law. And the Russians seem to be following like, and also if your antenna is designed to work in the X band, it isn't gonna work well outside that anyway. Mm -hmm. So you need a different, uh, they have the X band, L band. These are different bands that are set up under international law. Mm -hmm. 
And I did look at what would happen if we transmitted outside those ranges. And the answer was it really didn't do us any good uh, because our own antennas would fall off. So we obey that law. And as far as we know, the Russians do too. Okay. Uh, so when you've got that, that frequency hopping up and down then, and it's going up, uh, I, I, I'd have to see what the range is, but 10 hertz or 100 hertz and then back down or something like that, right? Um, what, is, what does the jammer have to move in order to kind of make sure that they cover that? Uh, well, if we're hopping, yeah. if we're hopping it, like that, that final one, it wouldn't work. Hmm. against the 106 with the agile frequency, mm -hmm. it would work. We simply didn't see the jamming. Hmm. It was one of the problems we had in the 106 was to train our new pilots. <clears throat> they hadn't ever seen jamming because the 106 was so good in its normal mode. We had advanced modes, but it was so good in the normal modes that the new guys never saw jamming. And they didn't use the advanced things. Hmm. The um, F-102 had even some things that the 106 didn't have. The F-102, as I mentioned, you could go home on jam, mm -hmm. go home in on it. Well, and I said you'd be in a, on a uh, curve of pursuit attack, mm -hmm. just like an infrared. Yeah. But if you're out here and the ground radar says that he's 18 miles away, the F-102 allows you to set your radar to 18 miles on this jamming stream. Said 18 miles is, oh, okay, he's 18 miles, and you set in your uh, overtake based on your geometry. Say I expect that I'm closing at, say, uh, 400 knots. Set it to 400. 18 miles, and the computer would then pick a lead collision course. So instead of coming in from behind, it would go ahead and would, would actually bring you on a lead collision course. Much shorter approach, much better. But we got so good that that jamming didn't occur anymore. And we didn't need that function anymore. So we didn't even have it in the 106. Huh. All right. Well, and that, that is interesting where you get some institutional knowledge built up and things kind of work differently, hopefully better sometimes in the field than, than the theory says. Uh, I was interested in how fast in the, the Yom Kippur War uh, the, the technology changed um, and how just instantly, the, the, the Russian system was obsolete, right? Uh, and then they've got to go and design something else. So these things are very expensive uh, and, and kind of time consuming. I was watching a presentation from a, uh, he was undersecretary for uh, defense for electronic warfare. So at the time, it was, was three years ago. And he said that uh, electronic warfare as a topic had been ignored in the US for 25 years. And I, I found that fascinating <laughs> that, that an undersecretary of defense for electronic warfare is saying this. And he's since gone into private industry and I'm working on connecting with him right now. But uh, I was curious about your views on that. I mean, if, if you stay in touch with uh, recent developments in that. Well, at the time 
I left, the F-106 was so good that the Russians couldn't jam it. Hmm. So the Russians gave up jamming. So with the Russians Hmm. gave up jamming, we gave up on our countermeasures. Right. So so this whole thing sort of went in the dustbin. Hmm. And now, now suddenly, if they start coming up with new things, and we have we've to forgotten what we, we knew, hmm. we have to learn these things again. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, this, this institutional knowledge idea, you hear me talk about it a lot on this show. Um, it's, it's not like you can just archive stuff and then pull it out again 30 years later or something like that. Uh, people have forgotten to be used to it. They're, they're not thinking um, that way anymore and they've got to relearn how to do it, which creates clunkiness. Uh, and I guess all you can hope for is the guys on the other side <laughs> are suffering from the same symptoms. So, mm-hmm. so we're talking about them. The picture that I've gotten from you today that, that maybe wasn't as clear for me before is that we're playing a game inside a, a narrow or a fixed spectrum range. Um, and, and we know we're probably not going to go outside of that. And so we're trying to create improvements in, um, inside this range um, in terms of what we can see, the resolution. And then uh, we've got all this, um, you know, we profess to be an AI company here, (laughs) a machine learning company. We've got all this uh, artificial intelligence that maybe we can apply to the algorithms and uh, and because speed is so important, right? Uh, In terms of not just sending out the signal and getting it back, which seems to be a key thing, but also, okay, what did we get? We, we need to filter, we need to, and we didn't even get into that. There is, there is filtering on signals and that. Uh, to, to determine what have we seen here and, and getting it accurate, as opposed to the countermeasures that you talked about where they're trying to push the signal to the side or you know, up or down or disguise it, right, as, as something else. So. Um, so, you know, me personally, I'm looking for uh, a vision to that opening, that, that um, what product or, or effect or result can we work on developing a product towards, right? That's where my mental eye is, is aimed at. So I, I really enjoyed having you on. Um, it, was, it was also interesting to hear from you how, how not great drones are. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of, we hear about, oh, the president's issuing, you know, orders for zone strikes, whoever the president happens to be. I'm not picking on anybody in particular, you know, around the world. And, and uh, I get if they don't have jammers, <laughs> you know, yeah, it is sort of the wonder weapon that, uh, that, that uh, they say it is. But if they've got the ability to jam these things, um, like you say, ECM, you know, it's, it's too big too heavy, too expensive to stick on a drone. Um, the antenna can't be that long because you're dealing essentially with a missile again, right? Mm-hmm. I'm imagining. Um, so you can't get a long, long frequencies or range. Um, you can just do short, uh, short distance things. So you give me a lot to roll around in my head and <laughs> think about some more. 
so my guest has been Bruce Gordon, uh, Major Bruce Gordon, author of uh, Spirit of Attack. I'm going to go and pick up my copy right after we're done here. So stay on with me, Bruce, so that we can do that <laughs> transaction. And uh, I'm going to, when I get the book, I'll, uh, I'll do a flip through of it uh, for the channel. And, uh, you know, if you're on YouTube following me then uh, you'll be able to do that. You can connect with Bruce uh, by going to Spirit of Attack uh, Facebook page and uh, check out the videos there, also the YouTube channel. But he doesn't like YouTube as much. His, <laughs> his, his first love is Facebook, so, and all the videos are on there. Uh, any final thoughts, Bruce? Um, and we can finish um, up. I actually have some Russians interested in my book. <clears throat> uh, I've uh, I decided it's, it's not classified anymore because this was uh, 50 years ago. <laughs> and so uh, the, a Russian is translating my book right now into Russian. <laughs> I would be interested to see if it, uh, how it sells in Russia. Right, right. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. And uh, I'm going to keep learning more and compiling questions and that kind of thing might have you back on uh, some, some months from now when I've got uh, better questions to ask you. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thank you much. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring which is what we're all about and uh, drop in your email address there and i will be able to do that for you make space boring is another little show that i run it's a shorter format quick interviews and uh, news of the day and sometimes an update of who i'm meeting and what i'm learning in the space field it's on the same cold star tech channel speaking of which on the youtube channel i can do something i cannot do on the audio only version which is add playlists and so there may be topic area playlists on the youtube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.